On the record, flips to the B-side. Good morning. I'm Mia Lobel, and you're listening to B-Side. This month, stories about going home, what home means, how home feels, and how home can change. As On the Record flips to the B-Side. I have two homes. One's in Berkeley, where I live with my roommate. This is the place I keep my clothes, the place I go home to pretty much every day. Then there's my home in upstate New York, where I grew up, where my parents still live, and where my bedroom hasn't changed since I was 13 years old. Point is, home can mean so many different things. The B-Side crew decided to start with the basics, the nuts and bolts that hold our walls together. So we went to Home Depot, our local home improvement superstore. Among the aisles of lumber, paint, and power tools, besides Tamara Keith and I found that most people think of home as more than just hardware. So what are you buying here today? I'm uh, looking for some uh, equipment to use to strip some wire. I'm hooking up some lights in my basement. We found Albert Neal in the electrical department. He's retired from the U.S. Navy and now owns a home in Berkeley. He says home isn't just four walls and a roof. It's where you sleep, where you eat, and uh, of course it's just the place that you'd like to get back to after you're you're away for a while. For shopper Mitch Kipp, home is a few thousand miles away from the lumber department where we found him. What do you consider home? Uh, Just north of Detroit, Michigan. What are you doing here at Home Depot in uh, in Emeryville? I am uh, fixing up a house in Oakland with a buddy of mine. We bought a house and we're redoing it. And uh, I'm pretty much just a, a Home Depot groupie. So someday will this house be your home? I think we're going to turn around and sell it and make some dough, you know what I mean? Go back to Michigan? Well, it depends on the profit. I might hang out for another year or two and do a few more. When Mitch finally does go back to his home in Michigan, he might be surprised at just how much things can change in a few years. Reporter Judson True recently went back to his hometown in O'Fallon, Illinois, just across the Mississippi River from St. Louis, Missouri. When he got there, he found his old suburbs sprouting subdivisions the way it used to grow corn. To get to Sally Brown's farmhouse on the edge of O'Fallon, Illinois, I push open a heavy red gate and drive a third of a mile down a gravel road through a lush green forest. As I approach the house, big barking dogs remind me of going to my grandparents' farm in Oklahoma as a kid. But this rural lifestyle is on its way out in O'Fallon. Once we get inside, Sally, who is a cousin of one of my old friends, says things have really changed in the last decade. We used to be outside of O'Fallon, Illinois. Now we're surrounded by O'Fallon city limits. Five generations have been on the property. My great-grandfather purchased a portion of the property. My parents raised their family here. But as O'Fallon sprawls ever closer to the family farm, Sally says the sounds of speeding cars and leaf blowers have become a constant annoyance. When you have a dream that is kind of elusive and you can't quite get a handle on what it was, that's what it's like here. I mean, you can almost remember what it was like to be able to surround yourself with sounds of nature. But we're virtually surrounded by subdivisions. And it's a sad, sad thing. The new subdivisions springing up around O'Fallon have names like Lincoln's Gettysburg and Nolan Creek Estates, and I don't like them any more than Sally does. 
They've got big houses, every third one the same, with ornamental columns and cheap siding in place of the red brick of the town's older homes. All the new houses are gobbling up the acres of corn and soybean fields that gave O'Fallon a pleasantly rural feel. Proximity to St. Louis, good schools, and modest home prices have made the town attractive to newcomers. It's become a textbook case of suburban sprawl. When I left for college in 1992, the head count was around 14,000. Now it's more like 23,000. Not that I loved the O'Fallon of my youth. It was already becoming a suburb, with chain restaurants and retail stores out by the interstate, eroding the small-town feeling. In high school, I was drawn to the not-so-subtle message of a song called Subdivisions by the arena rock band Rush. I don't listen to Rush anymore, but the song reminds me of the emptiness of the suburbs. It's an emptiness I only understand looking back. One of the things I did like about growing up in O'Fallon was my quirky high school English teacher, Ruth Smith. Now she's a person I most like to visit when I'm in town, besides my mom. Ruth is a lifelong O'Fallonite, but she's almost ready to head for a more rural locale now that her quiet country town has a rush hour. I don't like the traffic. The town has changed. I think probably eventually, if I live long enough, I'll move. I get a better sense of the population surge that is driving Ruth away as I walk the crowded halls of my alma mater, O'Fallon Township High School. My graduating class is around 300. Just 10 years later, it's almost twice that. Instead of building a new school, they filled in the courtyards with windowless classrooms. Principal Dennis Grimmer taught me U.S. history and coached me on the football field. Standing in the cafeteria, he says the school's growth presents certain problems. Probably at the high schooler, the biggest thing we've had to deal with is we're bigger. And you want it to feel as a friendly environment. You want it to feel like it's their school. You want to feel like they're involved. And the larger you get, the more difficult that is to do. But Grimmer doesn't oppose growth. He thinks it's the inevitable result of how people want to live. The people that don't live in the big cities don't want to build up. They want to build out. They want to have a little green area around their home. And you can't do that without uh, infringing into the, uh, into the green areas. Simple as that. Across town at City Hall, preserving the sounds and sights of country life isn't the first priority. Pro-growth mayor Gary Graham is in his second term. He's an articulate explainer of O'Fallon's appeal, and like any good politician, he's not afraid to plug the St. Louis baseball team and compliment a reporter. Our high school has been rated as high as in the top 5% in the country, and you're a product of our city and our school. People moved to O'Fallon for schools. Then we're a bedroom community. You know, we got cornfields right outside, but yet we're 16 miles from the Cardinals. So it's a great, great setting. He doesn't see an end to the growth anytime soon. I think the city will go to about 40,000, and it'll happen over the next 10 years. And I think that's kind of our natural limit. But, yeah, we probably have another 1,000 or 1,100 houses on the books right now. We've been going anywhere from 250 to 350 a year. I won't be living in one of these new houses or anywhere else in O'Fallon, so I don't have a direct stake in the fate of my sprawling hometown. I won't have to leave my home of six decades or watch cookie-cutter subdivisions encircle my family's land. But every time I go back to O'Fallon, I'll have to drive further and further out of town to see the yellows and greens of the wide-open farmland that tells me I'm home. For B-Side, I'm Judson True in O'Fallon, Illinois. The old hometown.
looks the same as I step down from the train. There to meet me is my mama and papa. Down the lane I look and there runs Mary, hair of gold and lips like cherry. It's good to touch the green, green grass of home. For a lot of people, home isn't as easily defined as that house on the corner of Main Street and First. It's hard to figure out exactly what home is when you don't stay in any one place for more than a few months, or even a few weeks. 16-year-old essayist Sarah Richardson doesn't really have a place she can call home. I've moved around a lot. Both of my parents died of AIDS before I turned nine years old. I lived in foster care for a while before moving in with my Aunt Rose. She abused me, and after seven years, I moved out. Back to foster care for a while... Then, when I was 11, I went to live with my Aunt Elaine. At this point, I didn't trust anyone, so I didn't expect to stay with my Aunt Elaine long. After one particularly bad fight, she called my social worker and told her to find me a place to live. I didn't care. I thought anything would be better than living with my aunt, but I was wrong. I packed up as much as I could carry, and my aunt drove me to my first group home, a place called Kairos in East Oakland. This was different from foster care. The afternoon staff interviewed me in the main office. I remember all the residents looking at me through the office door. I felt like an animal on display. I found out later that the residents checked out new girls to see how much competition they would be when it came to getting boys. When my interview was finally finished, the staff led me up to my room. The girls followed me. I thought it was because they wanted to talk to me. But I figured out the hard way. It was a way for girls to inventory what they wanted to steal. I didn't come into the house with much, but the few things I did value, I had taken away from me. Clothes, money, even old photographs. I stayed at Kairos for ten months, and now I'm living in my fourth group home. I moved three times last year alone, and because of it, I went to three different schools. I've lost school credits, friends... I've moved around so much, it's hard for me to get close to people. I always have a fear in the back of my mind that I'll have to move again. So what's the point in making new friends? I can't imagine what it would be like to have a place to call home. I wonder what it would be like not to have to worry about my things being stolen. How would it be to come home and see the same faces every day? I wonder what it would be like to have someone love me, and no matter what I do have a home to come back to. I'm supposed to be moving again this summer. I'm excited because at this next place, I will have more independence, but I know I will have to start all over again. I'm so tired of starting all over again, but that's what happens when you don't really have a home. I've lived through times when I didn't feel like there was anything worth living for. I've lived in some of the most disgusting places I have ever seen. I've learned to rely on myself. I've learned that I'm strong. And wherever I move, I will make it through. Sarah Richardson will be a junior this fall at Maybeck High School in Berkeley.
You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-side. You're listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and the theme of this month's show is going home. As Tamara Keith and I cruise the aisles of Home Depot, passing bathroom tiles, kitchen sinks, and wall sconces, we ran into Barbara Davis, who was looking for deadbolts. I lost my set of keys, and I think I lost them in the house, but I don't know for sure. So I'm changing the locks on my apartment and one of my other apartments. Barbara is originally from Iowa and still goes back occasionally to visit friends and family there. But she considers her house in Oakland home sweet home. When you go to your house, do you go, ah, I'm here, I'm home? Yes, I do. (laughs) I definitely do. What makes it home for you? Well, it's very cozy. And uh, everything I've collected over the last 40 or 50 years you know, is there. And I have a a studio wall now of all the paintings and all the things that I've carried around for years and not done anything with, which is exciting. There's something about painting house or putting things on the walls that really makes a place feel like home. In the central California city of Fresno, some unlikely homeowners are experiencing that feeling for the first time. As B-Sides Tamara Keith reports, 32 immigrant farmworker families, originally from an isolated Mexican village, recently moved into brand new homes built just for them. Adelina Ventura, a small woman with sun-hardened skin and an apron tied around her waist, walks through the kitchen in her new home. Speaking Mixtec, a language spoken by indigenous people from the Mexican state of Oaxaca, she proudly points to a bright white stove and refrigerator. There's no way that you can compare the trailer to this house. The trailer might not even be one quarter of this house. The trailer Ventura is talking about is a one-bedroom mobile home where her family of eight lived for nearly a decade. It's located fewer than 20 miles away from her new home, but a world apart. Today, her dilapidated trailer is one of dozens sitting empty behind a chain-link fence at the Tall Trees Mobile Home Park in an industrial part of Fresno County. Attached to the fence are two metal signs, one in Spanish, one in English. They warn that chemicals known to cause cancer and birth defects may be present. Ventura says when she and her family moved into Tall Trees, there were no warning signs, and they had no idea of the potential hazards. When we came there, there were people living there, so we thought it was a fine place to live, until later on we found out that it wasn't. The trailer park's 250 residents were primarily indigenous Oaxacans who came from a small village in Mexico called San Miguel Cuevas. They left their home village looking for a better life in California's agriculture-rich Central Valley, but quickly found themselves at the bottom of the food chain, working in the worst possible conditions for little pay. The trailer park where they wound up living was run down, sandwiched between a wrecking yard and a toxic waste dump. It was unhealthy. It wasn't deemed as being fit for human beings to live in. Jeff Ponting is a lawyer with California Rural Legal Assistance who worked to have Ventura and her neighbors moved out of the trailer park. The residents 
who were living at the Tall Trees Trailer Park did not live there out of choice. They lived there out of necessity. It was the only area in the entire county where these people could afford to live. And the reason why they could afford to live there was because it was next to and on top of a toxic dump site. In fact, part of the Tall Trees Trailer Park actually sits on top of a Superfund hazardous waste site. It's a former oil dump where, over the decades, millions of gallons of oil have soaked into the ground. Juana Rambula is a Fresno County supervisor who also worked on getting these people new, healthy homes. He says the residents of Tall Trees were at a disadvantage because many of them only spoke Mixtec. They don't speak Spanish, they don't speak English, and because of lack of knowledge and awareness, they did not know that they were living next to a Superfund site. So uh, they literally fell between the cracks. But a few years ago, these people who had fallen through the cracks for so long found themselves at the center of a big-money dispute over the cleanup of the Superfund site. With virtually no political influence, the residents of Tall Trees worked their way into a seat at the bargaining table. What's distinct about this case is that the residents never filed suit. It was settled through lengthy and sometimes antagonistic discussions that lasted more than a year. And the Chevron Corporation, one of hundreds responsible for the mess, took responsibility for the cleanup and played a big part in relocating the families to brand new homes in a neighborhood built just for them. The former residents of Tall Trees Trailer Park may not know for years if there will be long-term health effects from living on a toxic site. But Nasteria Bautista isn't really thinking about that right now. She's still glowing over the idea that she and her husband have become homeowners. All they'll ever have to pay is property tax. No rent, no mortgage. Walking through her new three-bedroom home, Bautista marvels at its size. Even with all of the family's belongings inside, it still looks empty. Here the kids have their own rooms, which they didn't have at the trailer. The house has everything you need. And for Bautista, one of the best things about her house is her neighbors, all the same people who lived at the trailer park. She says that's one thing residents insisted on when they sat down to negotiate their relocation. They wanted to move as a group. We depend on each other as a community. For instance, when I had to go to work and I needed someone to watch my children, I can go and ask the neighbor. So that is why we decided to continue as a community, and that's how we ended up here. Dubbed Casa San Miguel after their home village in Mexico, these 32 tract homes in a rough part of southwest Fresno are the first neighborhood outside of Oaxaca owned entirely by indigenous Mixtecs. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith in Fresno. But all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness in harmony. I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound. Home, where my thoughts are
silently for me. This song by Simon and Garfunkel was recorded in New York Central Park in September of 1981. Twenty years later, as we all know, terrorist attacks drastically changed New York. Everyone, especially those of us who call New York home, has done a lot of thinking since then about where we come from and what it means to be safe at home. Besides, Noam Birnbaum grew up just blocks away from the World Trade Center. And though he has since moved away, he still feels a deep connection with the place. In trying to sort out the events of last fall, Noam went on a walk with his mother through his old neighborhood to ask some hard questions about her past. But their conversation about remembering quickly turned into one about forgetting. One night when I was five years old, I realized I was going to die. I called out for my mother, and she told me it wouldn't happen for a long time. But suddenly she said, You know what I think is sad? I never knew my parents. That's the only time she ever expressed emotion about her childhood unprompted. In 1944, when she was four years old, the Nazis interred her and her family in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, where her parents died of starvation and disease. I would tell you more of her story if I could, except she doesn't remember. You just have to accept the fact that, you know, you can't remember, and that's it. I can't even imagine what it would be like not to remember such a significant experience. And because my mother can't remember, I feel a deep loss. After all, it's where I come from, and if she doesn't remember, I'll only understand my past through history books. I went home this past spring, still grappling with the effects of the September 11 attacks on the Lower Manhattan neighborhood where I grew up. I wanted my mother to help me put that day into perspective, so we went on a walk through the still devastated neighborhood to reflect and, I hoped, to talk about her own traumatic past. Unfortunately, she seemed to know as little about the reality of the Holocaust as me. You know, when, when people like say am I, am, are amazed that I am a Holocaust survivor, I, I hate this I hate this phrase, you know. It's it's like I am not a Holocaust survivor. I'm like a child of a Holocaust survivor because I can't remember anything. It's like I'm a second generation. I know that I'm a Holocaust survivor, but for me it's like happened to somebody else because I simply don't remember it. I, on, I only know what I was told. So that's it. No, it didn't happen to me. I find it strange that my mother feels she isn't really a Holocaust survivor because although I wasn't even alive at the time, it's always been a pervasive force in my life. It's like my mother and I swapped places. I'm the survivor and she's the forgetter. I can pretend that things didn't happen and therefore, you know get over them faster. Uh, no, no, not that they didn't happen, but they didn't happen to me personally. I am safe. I'm all right. So that's it, you know. It sounds terribly selfish, but it's, it's, I think it's a mechanism of protection, self-protection, you know. I just close myself from emotions. For me, it's the opposite. When I see all the joy and excitement the world has to offer, I can't help knowing that it also has many frightening possibilities which few people openly consider. Even my mother, whose life seems to prove tragedy's potential. It's true that many people can't remember their childhoods, but she seems to have built walls against anything but forgetting. All my life, it's like my life is all a, a chain of events that seems to have been carried me along with it. And, and hardly any time on my own initiative. 
it's very strange because I have been to many places and I've I went through a lot and yet you know it's such a placid life with no no big earth-shaking events it's 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 weird I think if when I'm thinking of it which I never do this was obvious on our walk as we strolled past the site of the World Trade Center collapse just blocks away from her home instead of talking about the tragedy all she wanted to talk about was flowers grape hyacinths pansies the trees are budding so nice <laughs> spring it's a nice day see when you live in the city it's, you have to get enjoyment from any little piece of earth you can as I watched her smell the flowers I thought about my tendency to always fear the worst and I wondered whether pessimism was getting in my way maybe I was the one who needed to learn how to cope with the past not her although she had lived through a traumatic event she hadn't let it keep her from living her life her reluctance to look back which I have always seen as a personal failing might actually be an affirmation of the gift of life that her parents were denied. You know, when somebody dies around you, you have to, you mourn, and then you get over it. You continue living. Uh, and I, I keep marveling about the great capacity of human body to revive and to become normal again after being deprived for so long, you know, and at the crucial period of childhood, too. As she showed me the different types of beauty that thrive on the edges of her adopted home, I began marveling at her ability to revive and find pleasure in even the smallest things. Look at this new fish. Last week we only had, I saw only two fish here, one large female and one smaller one, probably the male. And But now they're oh good. It's so good to see when, that life is coming back to my favorite place, my favorite pond. At the boat basin behind a ruined glass atrium, we found a makeshift memorial to the firefighters who lost their lives that day. Still trying to draw her out, I said. September 11 was very sad, but you've probably had enough sadness. You're probably numb by now. She turned toward the construction workers rebuilding the atrium and said, I just want everything to be rebuilt, be back to normal, be beautiful again. Just as I was surprised as a child to hear her express her longing for her parents, I was surprised to hear this one simple wish. And although I still felt there were many unspoken words that I had gone home to hear, and all sorts of frightening possibilities ahead, I realized that I, too, wanted everything to be beautiful again. For B-Side, I'm Noam Birnbaum. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by David Kaufman. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening. I'm going back home Where I was born First I planned to stay But I can't live this way I'm going back home will return on September 4th with a show about first time. In the meantime, on the record returns August 21st. I think your city's grand, but with